Hey everybody, welcome back to Scientology 101. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. This is Eddie Green's 101, but I do do, and I did just say do do, I do do a lot of Scientology 101. I poop it right out and and, and hopefully you guys uh, take a look at it and you want to uh, do a little deep diving and digging and that's, that's a h horrible analogy. Why am I sharing? Anyways, you guys know what I'm talking about. So Let's get into the sponsor, and then let's get into who I have on the guest today. Who I have on the guest today, um, that's also a horrible analogy. Who I have on the podcast today as a guest. There we go. Jesus, Eddie. I'm not cutting that, though. I'm not cutting it. So here we go, guys. Sponsor in 5432, 2.5. No, now we're going back up. 54321, 1.5. Uh, no, now we're going back up again. Fuck it. Sponsor. Alrighty, so there we go. That's the sponsor. And uh, now I have Mark Headley on the podcast. He is, I'm holding back a sneeze right now. Ooh. You ever have that happen? All right. Mm. I promise I'm not infected with COVID. Um, mm. God, I want to keep talking. Here we go. And I'm not cutting this either. This is this is the no cutting episode, okay? And that also means that, yeah, this is a PSA, no cutting, okay? I'm anti-cutting. Um, I know people that have, and I don't know why I'm going down this alley right now. I'm just improvising, improving. Um, anyways, all right, so I think the sneeze is gone. So my guest is Mark Headley. He is uh, an ex-Scientologist member. He's also the author of a wonderful book that he was kind enough to send me. It is called Blown for Good. That little crack you heard there in the background, that was my toe. I'm cracking them on the floor as I'm doing this. Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. That is the name of the book. And um, he is a, he's just a wonderful guy. This was a wonderful, wonderful episode to record. It was one of the easier ones to do. I'm always a little nervous doing these Scientology ones just because, you know, I want to make sure that I'm not uh, doing too much talking. I want to make sure that uh, I'm giving the spotlight to them because they're clearly more informed than I am. I just use my platform, my podcast as a means to get the information out there. And, um, but it was a lot of fun to talk with Mark, very down to earth guy. There's a lot of cool things we talk about in here. A lot of cool things that happen. David Miscavige might make a cameo appearance indirectly. I don't know. You'll have to listen. Uh, we even talk about bobbleheads. I mean, there's, there's just so much stuff in here. John Travolta makes an appearance. Come on. Oh my God. Um, but, uh, it's a lot of fun. So sit back, relax, uh, put down your copy of Dianetics for however long the episode is. Get ready, get set. Did I already say that? I don't know, but I'm going to say it again. Get ready, get set. It is Mark Headley. Hello, it's Mark speaking. Hey, Mark, what's going on? Eddie Eddie from uh, Eddie Green's 101. I'm so happy that uh, we're able to make this happen. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, first and foremost, for, uh, for everyone listening. Mark was kind enough to uh, send me his book, which is, uh, is called Blown for Good Inside the Iron Curtain of Scientology. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, my introduction to you and I'm sure you, you know, you probably get this a lot was through uh, Leah Remini's show. And, um, 
that's sort of been the introduction for me through or for a lot of the guests that I've had on, whether it be Ron Miscavige or Aaron Smith-Levin, or I just had Mark Bunker on not too long ago. And, um, you know, that show, I was talking with Mark about it. Um, Mark with a K, you're Mark with a C. Um, that's right. Uh, and I was telling him that, you know, that show is really kind of the, like the magnum opus when it comes to, uh, you know, getting the word of Scientology out there. Would you agree on that? Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I wrote that book, uh, Blown for Good, in 2009. So basically, that book had been out for 10 years. And I had actually kind of even, you know, not really done that much in terms of activism on Scientology for a while. And when that show came out, Mike and Leah contacted my wife and I and asked if we'd want to be on the show. And we were like, yeah, you know, absolutely. Whatever you guys need. And, you know, as soon as that show aired, people would stop us in the supermarket and, you know, just out and about town. And I couldn't believe, I mean, I'd done, I'd done TV shows. I'd even done uh, different documentaries that aired in Australia and, UK and a lot of other stuff, but that show really reached millions and millions of people. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that, you know, it, that it only lasted three seasons, but from what I understand, they're probably going to continue doing something else, whether it be, um, I know there's talks of doing a podcast or there's talks of maybe doing, I don't know, some other show on some other, some other network or, and you know, yeah, that's, that, that, that's really good because you know, again, she had this platform and, you know, just being who she is and, 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 you know, it, it, it definitely brought a lot of awareness to, you know, this, this problem in a world full of problems. I was telling Mark, uh, Bunker about this as well, that it's when, when I reached out to him initially, you know, um, the whole George Floyd issue had not happened yet. And then when we were recording, I almost had uh, like a bit of trepidation in even doing it because it's almost like is Scientology, you know, bringing awareness to it and and talking about it, and is that something that we should be doing right now at this exact moment? Because it's sort of like a, I don't know, it's taken a like a step down in terms of you know what we should actually be, I think, talking about. But um, I did do a whole episode on the Black Lives Matter movement, so you know I feel okay about you know talking about because I am very passionate about this this uh, anti Scientology and and your story is 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 kind of crazy because um, it's, it's very crazy. <laughs> there's a yeah there's there's a lot of craziness inside this story. So um, for everyone listening that's not familiar with 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 that episode that might not have seen it, um, I'm. I'm kind of curious because in that episode, they don't really talk about, and I'm sure you did talk about it, but I'm sure it was kind of edited down and, and, and cut away. How, how exactly did you even get involved in Scientology in the first place? Well, my mom got involved in Scientology. We, we, we used to live in Kansas City. We moved to California when I was about six. And she pretty much got involved with Scientology as soon as we moved. To California. And so I kind of grew up in and around it. We actually lived in an apartment building right across the street from the what's now the Celebrity Center, which is the uh, Manor Hotel, uh, the Chateau Elysee on uh, Tamarind and Franklin in Hollywood. So 
I grew up across the street from one of their major centers. And um, the and the reason we lived there is because my mom was involved. So it was a very convenient place for us to be. And um, so I grew up in and around it, went to Scientology schools as I was growing up. And so when my dad moved from California to back to Nebraska, I was sort of kind of on my own with my mom and and anything that I did that wasn't Scientology was not really approved of. So the only way I could really, you know, do something that she wanted was to be involved in Scientology. And pretty much all the fights I grew up in my early teens uh, with my mom, any arguments or any nonsense that was happening was my disagreements with doing things the Scientology method. So... At the age of 15, I joined the Sea Organization, which is the, you know, that's sort of like the fraternal order of Scientologists where you sign the billion year contract and oh. you work about 100 hours a week for about 45 bucks. And um, yeah, I did that for 15 years at the international headquarters in California. And uh, and that's basically where I kind of grew up was at the international headquarters of Scientology. Now, now, so, now at that age, no one, no one should be signing any kind of a contract, let alone a billion year contract. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't even I couldn't even buy a car, get a loan, but I could I could sign a contract <laughs> for, a bil- for a billion years. <laughs> oh, my God. Ugh, yeah, it was. It was pretty crazy. And, and and the crazy thing is, is in order to do that, my mom had to sign some papers saying that, yeah, he's yours. That's it. Uh, uh, you're good to go. Oh, my God. Well, because that's the thing that I don't think a lot of people are that aware of is that children are treated as equals in terms of how Scientology thinks of them, right? They Like they think that for the most part, children are basically the way they describe it is, and it's, I mean, it's common sense. It's children are not fully grown. I mean, yeah, I, I think the actual, the quote or the, the technical jargon is they're just, uh, they're million or trillion year old Thetans just in little bodies. So that's another thing that's kind of odd in Scientology. And I think it helps with the, uh, you know, the disconnection techniques and, uh, you know, practices, which they do is that they don't really think of uh, as people as relatives. They think of them as these beings and the body they have might be the son or the daughter of another body. But that Thetan, what they call the Thetan is what the Scientologists refer to as that. That's what they refer to as the spirit. The spirit is not the daughter of another spirit or the son of another spirit or the father or the mother of another spirit. So um, so when you're disconnecting from your mother or your father, they're just another spirit that you're not going to talk to or be with anymore. And they kind of that same kind of methodology is how they treat kids like you're not a you're not 12, you're not 13, you're a million years old. So you know, who cares that you're working 120 hours a week? That, that has nothing to do with it. Yeah. And, um, and that's, and, and, 
And th that is an, a crazy thing, which I don't think a lot of people know is that when Hubbard was around, he had this thing called the com. He was he was the commodore of all of the Scientology ships that the Sea Org had, um, and they had several ships that were at sea. And I think the main reason for them being at sea was so he could evade, you know, tax authorities of various governments all over the world. Um, and being in international waters kind of helped him out in that regard. But um, they had several different ships, and he was the commander of all those ships, and they referred to him as the Commodore. Well, he started a thing called the Commodore's Messenger Org, which is now just generally referred to as the CMO. And the Commodore's messengers were all kids, like from like nine to like 16. And the Commodore's messengers, he would say, go tell, you know, Joe Blow uh, to throw, throw somebody overboard. And you'd have a 12-year-old little girl going up to somebody and saying, hey, you need to throw uh, Billy Bob over the uh, side of the boat. Uh, he's, he's to be thrown overboard for whatever infractions he committed or whatever. And so you have these 12 and 13 year old little girls running all over the uh, place, ordering adults around. And when the Sea Org moved to land, and that's why a lot of th th this will make a lot of sense. If you're familiar with the Clearwater facilities, that's called the Flag Lands Base. So Flag was the ship that controlled all the other ships. When they moved to Clearwater, and moved all the all the ships they moved all those operations to land they called it the flag land base and so then all those cmo people and all the different various organizations that all just transferred to different land uh bases all over the world and then you had cmo units in all the different continents so you have CMO Western United States, CMO Eastern United States. There's a CMO in Clearwater, which is called CMO CW. And throughout the entire time that I was in the Sea Org, it was still being run, even though Hubbard had passed on. There was some advice or some writing that he had left that said these things should still be um, run by kids. So when I was at the international base, um, the base, the CMO organization, there was two at the international base. There was one that was called CMO International, and that was the Commodore's Messenger Org International that ran all of the CMO bases all over the world. And there would be kids that would show up to the property that were 14 or 15 and they would be bossing around 50, 60-year-old dudes, yelling at them and screaming at them and, you know, giving them orders and telling them what to do. And it, it's a sight to, it's a sight to behold. And that still goes on to this day. Oh, yeah. We even had, we even had, so they have this thing at the, um, they have it in all Scientology, but it's called a security check. And when you're, when you're practicing Scientology as a as a public person, like who's paying and then getting auditing, um, you do it on the e-meter, and it's sort of uh, they call it counseling or auditing, or it's spiritual. It's a spiritual process that's taking place. They're asking you questions, 
you're answering the questions, you're thinking about different things. Well, they do another similar style thing on the e-meter and that's called security checking. And it's basically like an interrogation. Like, it, it, that, it, that's exactly what it is. It's an, it's an interrogation and they're doing it with the, with the aid of the e-meter. So they're kind of looking for your secrets and the e-meter helps them guide, it helps guide them to your secrets. And if you believe in the e-meter, the e-meter will work on you. That's, that's basically how I explain it. If you think the e-meter is a piece of junk and it doesn't do anything, then it's a piece of junk and it, it doesn't do anything. But if, if, you do, if you believe it, it can find those secrets, then they can absolutely use it to find those secrets. So you have, so in, at the international headquarters, it was very common for the people that were the best security checkers to be these young kids that had been trained from very, very, a very young age to be an auditor or to be a security checker. And so there was a lot of times when like seasoned veterans, I'm talking about people who have been in the CR for 20, 30 years to be interrogated by a 14 year old girl on the e-meter for hours and hours and hours on end. And, um, and we actually kind of, we, a lot of us were amused by it because we were seasoned, you know, we'd been there for a lot of the people who worked at the international headquarters had been there for over a decade at least. And that place, I'm trying to think, that place is basically like the, the, the mafia of Scientology. That's what the international headquarters was like. So you'd see things that were insane. And, and I, and I kind of skimmed the surface of that in my book. And they really, really barely skimmed the surface of it on the show. So if you've watched the Aftermath show on A&E and you've seen some of these episodes like, oh my gosh, how could they do that? And that's, that's crazy. That, how is that happening in modern day America? That's the stuff that A&E would let them show. I know they filmed and I know they had stories that were much, much, much worse than what show that what actually aired. And those things they just couldn't show. It was just too outrageous to show. Damn. And even and even some of the things in my book, we we took things out because it was like there's no way people are gonna believe that. It's it's too unbelievable that 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 would happen. And 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 you don't want to walk that line of people necessarily going, oh, this is so out outlandish, this is so outrageous. There's no way that this guy is telling the truth. Yeah, and that's also the and that's actually an even crazier thing is that the things in my book are, I I, I didn't really know because they were the tame things, and the things in my book, some people are like, that's outrageous. You know, that's illegal. That, you know, you can't do that. That's human trafficking. That's uh, child abuse. That's kidnapping. And, and those are the things that I thought were, you know, well, yeah, that, that happened. That was like, that was a Tuesday, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like, it was, there was nothing to me. That was the nothing stuff. That was like, well, yeah, that just happened all the time. There, there was nothing outrageous about that. 
So, okay, so since this is not a this is not a show that is in any way, shape, or form owned by because I, I found this out that A and E is owned by Disney. I had no clue. Yeah, I had no clue about. And yeah, that. and that's an well, that's another thing. Scientology they've been doing kind of like this counter espion. They're like that's what that's exactly what the the Scientology is. They're like the FBI, the CIA, and the mafia all rolled into one. And the Gestapo. Let's throw in the Gestapo as well. They're like all those guys rolled into one. And their playbook, and Hubbard actually detailed this out, the Office of Special Affairs, which is kind of like their, their spy wing of Scientology, um, that's the legal department of Church of Scientology International. And every single Scientology organization has a director of special affairs and each of those people in every single organization is an agent of osa the office of special affairs and the and the office of special affairs directly runs all of these individual agents in every single organization and hubbard laid out that their playbook is the art of war that is their bible so if anybody's familiar with that book, they have the dead agent. They have they have all these basically these techniques that they use on people. So if somebody attacks Scientology, the first thing they do is they discredit the person. They don't they don't defend what the person is attacking them on. Like if if I say, oh, Scientology uh, takes your passport as soon as you get to the international headquarters. They don't say, no, 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 we don't take their passports. They absolutely 100% confiscate your passport. So they're not going to say, we don't do that. They do do that. Instead, they say, oh, that guy is a bully and he's a bad person. And they just basically attack that person. So when, when A&E is going to do a show on Scientology, they've already, they already have a, a binder on every single person that participated in that show. And they just send that binder to Disney with a letter from a lawyer as the like, hey, uh, just so you know, this is what this guy's up to. And a lot of it is complete and utter nonsense. And, but A&E doesn't know that. Disney doesn't know that. And they don't have the, the resources to deal with that. And Scientology, Scientology has several billion dollars. And so when people say, how could they do this or how could they do that? And it's like, if you had $3 billion, how many hundreds of millions of dollars would you spend to keep the $3 billion? So when I was at the international headquarters between 1990 and 2005, the Office of Special Affairs had like an allowance. We had a financial planning meeting that we attended every single week. And that's where they doled out, like, let's say, I don't know, it was anywhere from 500 to a million dollars worth of funds were being dispersed. The Office of Special Affairs, no matter what, I mean, some weeks were thin and some areas got zero dollars. But the Office of Special Affairs got $100,000 every single week, no matter what. Rain or shine, they got $100K every week. So that's a lot of lawyers. That's a lot of PIs. 
that's a lot of letters to Disney, A&E, whoever. So they also have hate websites. So like a lot of times they don't even have to send a dossier. They just send a link to the hate website on Ron Miscavige or Mike Rinder or Mark Headley or whoever the person is that's appearing on a, a show or a documentary or a podcast. They just send a link and they say, this guy's a paid, uh, you know, a paid agent of big pharma. They have a real thing about big pharma. Um, so sci- that's another thing. Scientologists believe that psychiatrists are basically, they're the, they're, they're the main villain of the planet, the psychiatrists. And the psychiatrists run the pharmaceutical companies. They run the government. They, they run the World Bank. They run all these people. And they, they basically, all those people are just the, the, the puppets that the psychiatrists control. And that's because L. Ron Hubbard was butthurt that they didn't like his. <laughs> that's exactly right. His... He sent a letter. He sent a letter to those guys trying to like sell them on Dianetics. And they told him, uh, go fly a kite, big guy. So <laughs> <laughs> stick to, keep stick, stick to your science fiction. You don't need, you don't need to get involved with this stuff. That's crazy. So, uh, you know... Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. He was like, hey, I got this great idea. And they took a big dump on it. And then it's like all of a sudden, oh, no, now they're the architects of world destruction. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing with, uh, with with talking about L. Ron Hubbard is, you know, on one hand, I have to acknowledge that the guy, the guy's sort of a genius because of he was able to take all this 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 negativity that he received from people and he turned it into what it is today. So in that regard, just in that regard alone, because. Other, other than that, he's not a genius. But in that regard alone, he is a genius because he took something that people looked down on and he turned it into, whether it's real or not, he turned it into something. And yeah, go ahead. He's a master bull. He's a master bullshitter. That's what he is. At the end of the day, he was a char- charismatic bullshitter, and he could get people to believe things that were just unbelievable. And in Scientology, uh, he he really has got these people bamboozled. I mean, anything that he wrote is basically um, in stone. That is the way it is. And a lot of the stuff that he wrote was during the 50s and the 60s and even the 70s. And, um, and it was like, no, this is the best. This is the way we do it. This is never going to change. And... Um, you know, and a lot of those things they still follow today to their detriment. And um, like paper files, they cannot get rid of their paper files because his entire administration, uh, administrative policies and systems and and procedures, it's all paper based. And so, if you go into any Scientology organization. <laughs> They have file cabinets going all the way back to the 1950s of every single person who's ever walked into any Scientology organization. God. And they've got a file for each person. And they're writing letters to these people and sending them mail and promo pieces. And I mean, Scientology has killed millions and millions and millions of trees sending paper <laughs> here and there and everywhere that, that <laughs> they, reminds me some of people uh, say they're worse than bed bath and beyond once you're on their list you're getting a letter for the rest of your life 
That reminds me of, have you ever seen that uh, movie Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey? Yes. Uh, did you, do you remember that scene where he's, uh, uh, God tells him, hey, everything you ever need is in that file cabinet right over there. And it's this little file yeah. cabinet in the corner and he pulls it open and it shoots him across the room. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. that, that's the image I just got in my head. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't have a, they don't have a really nifty file cabinet like that, but they do have that many files. So, God. I mean, at, at, in Florida, there's actually a building, like it's a warehouse, like it's like an Amazon fulfillment center that has file folders in it. Just pallets and pallets, shelves and shelves and shelves of folders. And those are called the pre-clear folders. So like when you're getting a session or you're getting counseling in Scientology, every time they do a session, they write the whole session up on paper and then it goes into your file folder. Well, these file folders, they get really thick and that may be like two inches thick, like a manila, a legal manila file folder. And if you've been in Scientology for years and years and years and gotten hundreds and thousands of hours of auditing, you could have 75 of those folders. And so every single Scientologist who participates in auditing could have anywhere from five to 50 folders and all of those folders get stored somewhere. So, I mean, just in the, just, just that alone kind of limits them in what they can do because they've, they just have a really archaic system and how they manage things. And, that, and that's another thing that I really explain in my book. My book is not really, I wouldn't say it's an expose or uh, it's not really, it's basically just like, this is what happened for 15 years when I worked at this place. This is, this is the daily things that went on. And you see, like we're doing, we're pulling all-nighters and we're building stuff and we're making things. And we would stay up all night and all day every week to make these cassettes that had lectures from L. Ron Hubbard on them. Because Hubbard said, if you made 20 cassettes last week, you got to make 30 cassettes this week. And if you made 30 cassettes this week, you got to make 40 cassettes next week and so on and so forth until we basically had a target from David Miscavige to make 50,000 cassettes every single week to, to be able to sell to Scientologists. And so for years and years and years, the strategy was that they've got to get their, this cassette duplication line to make 50,000 cassettes every week. Well, meanwhile, CDs came out, <laughs> DVDs came out, and we're still making 50,000 cassettes every week. <laughs> And this went on for years. I mean, we were producing 50,000 cassettes a week in the 2000s. <laughs> God. So, <laughs> so they weren't selling 50,000 cassettes. There was no, there was no uh, edict or, or dictate that said you have to sell 50,000. There was one that we had to, to make 50,000. So these cassettes would just get stored <laughs> and they would get stored in a warehouse. And we were we were literally blood, sweat, and tears were pouring into making these cassettes. It was just like, 
we should probably get on to making the CDs at some point. <laughs> now, so by the time by the time I left in two thousand five, they were making CDs. They were they were still making cassettes as well, but we were also making CDs, and that's the best thing. We started making CDs. Well, you know, iTunes had come out, downloads, <laughs> MP3s had come out, so uh, we were getting into the CD game for cheap because everyone was offloading all their CD all their uh their cd pressers and uh so um but yeah that's pretty much that is how they went the entire 15 years i was there uh we were still using this is gonna blow your mind when i left in 2000 there was still 16 millimeter film projectors that were being that were playing films in scientology organizations in 2005 now that blows my mind, but at the same time, being a film buff, that's kind of romantic to me because that's 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 pretty badass, you know. Like that's pretty well. It's <laughs> badass if it was optical sound, but it was not optical sound. It was mag stripe, which which anybody knows. Uh, film when you have a sixteen millimeter film, it has a little piece of magnetic stripe on it that has the sound in it. And every time you play that film, that man, magnetic stripe wears away. And if you've been playing a 16 millimeter film since 1985 and it's 2005, that sound is not going to be too good. <laughs> and that's and, and that's just the thing. They figured out the best possible way to make mag stripe sound because Hubbard said that was the best way to play a film. And, and that's how science, that's the epitome of everything in Scientology. Hubbard said, this is the way to do it. And basically the only reason we stopped doing it is because there weren't any projectors. There weren't any places that did mag stripe. And, and it is a certain, and it, and when that happened, they built a film lab at the international headquarters where we could produce our own 16 millimeter films and do our own mag stripe and do our own optical sound and all these other things. And, and even by the time that film lab was built, they switched over to doing uh, digital projection. So that's, that really is how everything in Scientology runs. They'll do what Hubbard said to do until you just can't even do it anymore. And that there's just no physical way to do it, which is, how I suspect the paper files will go and, you know, all these other sort of things. David Miscavige has to, if you change something that Hubbard wrote, you got to basically figure out how something else that he wrote justifies changing that other thing. And he did, Hubbard c contradict himself uh, constantly between, you know, the early 50s and the like early 80s when he basically he passed away in 86 so he was still writing and doing stuff up until the early 80s and um and a lot of that seven that 60s and 70s stuff 100 contradicts what he wrote in the 50s so if you've that's that's the thing you have to read it all to know which thing you can use to to negate the other thing but um yeah, it's a it's a it's a world of crazy that whole place.
No, uh, it definitely is. When you, uh, just to really quickly go to the, the whole file thing, is do you think one of the reasons why, besides maybe just following what Elrond said and, and that's set in stone, so okay, but do you think maybe they don't go digital with all those files because they're afraid of potential hacking or something along those oh, lines? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when I was at the, so I started out in the manufacturing production area where we made cassettes. And then we made VHS tapes and, and um, there's a film, it's called Ori Orientation. And it's basically a legal film. If you've watched the film, the film says, it's basically an, an agreement that you're gonna do Scientology. And if it doesn't go your way, then it's your fault. And after you watch this orientation film, you actually have to sign a document. And when you sign that document, you basically sign away your rights and you have no legal recourse against Scientology. And, and that's what the film is for. Well, the film was on 16 millimeter film and, and it sucked. And my a job, I basically rose through the ranks and I became the producer at Golden Era Productions. So I was responsible for all audiovisual production at, at the international headquarters. And I was like, we got to move to DVD. We, we, this is silly. It's silliness that we're showing films on this format of 16 millimeter, you know, acetate film, mag stripe film. We had some optical sound setups, but it was mostly mag stripe. And I proposed to David Miscavige that we produced the orientation film on dvd and <laughs> i got assigned to do standards <laughs> i don't know if you know what standards are but it's when you have to write on a blackboard like i had to write i will stop being a child <laughs> something like that i had to write that ten thousand times <laughs> on dry erase boards because i proposed to put the orientation film on DVD. And after I wrote it 10,000 times, David, David Miscavige said, do you know why I asked you to do that? And I was like, no, I have no fucking idea. He said, if we put it on DVD, it's gonna get stolen. It's gonna get put on the internet because anything that's digital can be hacked. And that's why he didn't, they didn't, they didn't for the longest time, they just didn't go digital. And even when I put my book out in 2005, it was the only digital Scientology book on Amazon. There was Scientology have 50, 60 books. They didn't, they didn't have one single one in Kindle or any kind of digital format because they're worried it's going to get stolen. Someone's going to put it up on the, the web and it's going to be a free download. And, and that, and, and also previous to that, there was, it was a guy, Scientology has its own computerization division and it's, it's job is to take anything and everything that Hubbard wrote and figure out how to computerize it and, and make it so it can be automated and the computer can do the work of the people that were, that Hubbard said should do these different things. It's mainly like if, if an executive gives an order, the executive's supposed to chase it up so many days after, and then 
if the person doesn't do it, then they get some some sort of punishment. And they basically figured out how to computerize this whole uh, this taskmaster system and this punishment system. And um, and the division of Scientology that did all this was called INCOM. It was the International Network of Computerized Management. And everyone called it INCOM. Anyway, there was a programmer that worked at INCOM. And he had basically taken all the internal Scientology documents and all the stuff that was going on internationally in Scientology. And he put it on a DVD. And he was walking out the door of Incom and got caught with this DVD. <laughs> and David Miscavige lost his shit times a million. And they actually, they actually locked all of the doors to this Incom place. And every single person that was maybe like 50, 60 people worked at this place. Every single person that worked there now lived inside their offices and they all got individually security checked. And this went on for months and months and months. So they basically just locked that place up. They turned it into basically a prison camp for all those people that worked there until they found out like basically every secret of every single person that worked there. And all of the people that went and did that, most of them came from the international base and they went down there. They call it a mission in the Sea Org. When you have to go out to some other place in Scientology and uh, bust some skulls, uh, they call it a mission. And you have like a mission uh, IC in charge and a mission second and a mission third. And you, you all go out there and you, you, you crack some skulls. You you rough up the locals and then you know they they get they start doing better and then you're all good and then the uh, Sea Org charges the org like fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so there was there was things that happened. There's also a security guard that worked at the international base, and uh, he worked in the in the incom area that was at the international base. And he was actually snooping around in David Miscavige's files, his personal files on the computer. Oh. So Miscavige had, he had good reason to be worried. And, and, and if you want to be honest about it, the internet is what basically neutralized Scientology. Like Scientology, they talked a big game, but you know, they had a good, um, they had a bit of a bite too and anonymous and just people being able to look up like is what is scientology oh it's fucking crazy cult oh you know okay good that's that you know um the internet you know in all of hubbard's millions and trillions of years and planets and galaxies that he went to he never predicted the internet somehow so um <laughs> So yeah, that was a big, uh, big faux pas on his part. Yeah, big, big misstep, <laughs> those, Mr. H. Those advanced societies that he visited, uh, they didn't have the internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, this David Miscavige guy. Uh, he sounds like he has. Uh, he needs some major anger management. And and um, oh yeah. And that's one of the uh, 
one of the craziest parts of uh, your story that you uh, told on that episode, and I'm sure you go into detail on your book, which, by the way, um, I did receive yesterday, and I'm currently in the in the midst of letting it uh, de-COVID-19-ify uh, itself. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just being safe. Yep. I'm just being safe. Um, but uh, I will definitely read it because uh, this is definitely an area of fascination for me. But the uh, where I was going with that is you you almost had probably something that no one else ever contemplated, which was a moment of actual fist to fist confrontation with this man. Yeah. Well, they do talk about that in the show just briefly, but in the book, like I go into excruciating detail on like everything that happened and where we were and what led up to it. And basically he punched me several times. And I kind of fell into like a like a cabinet, like a desk, a built a, a a wall that had a desk built into it and had some cabinets above it. I kind of fell into that a little bit, and uh, and then I kind of regained my uh, my my footing. And then I was like, "It's on, motherfucker! <laughs> Let's do this!" And because uh, I mean, I just got pumped. I just got punched out by the Pope of Scientology. Yeah, there's not much else that can happen. Like. This is it. This is the bottom. You're, you're not going to get lower in status than this. So let's do this. You know, like I was ready to go and I'm bigger than he is. So it's like, dude, seriously. I mean, he was he he works out and he, you know, shoots himself up with HGH and goes has a tanning. You know, he looks like he can, you know, he can rumble a little bit, but he's still he's four foot 13. I mean, I'm going to take that guy. And it's like, that's, that's, I'll risk that, you know, come on, let's do this. As soon as that, that registered on my face, uh, th these dudes grabbed me and they just picked me up and took me out of the building. <laughs> now, when you say that, so, that, that these dudes just grabbed you, like, were they in the room? Could you see them or did they kind of like come out oh, of yeah, shadows? No. no, no, no. He travels with the whole entourage. He doesn't go he very, very rarely walked around, even at the international base. He thought we were all trying to kill him. I mean, he told us that on a regular basis. Like, if we went into a conference room and there was one of his water bottles was opened, that was poison. That one's poisoned. Holy like, shit. You guys going to try to kill me? That one's a poison. Like, yes. Like, dude, 100% serious. He literally told us on multiple occasions that we were all trying to get out to get, get him and kill him. And, and the things that happened Oh, anyway. So yeah, these, he traveled with a, an, an entourage. Usually he had his wife who was his assistant at the time, this other girl who was his communicator, which is basically just another assistant. And then he usually had like some other big executives that were like bosses of the area you're in or the CMO. So he would, Usually when he walked around in Golden Era Productions, which is where I worked, um, he was also had the commanding officer of Golden Era Productions, the commanding officer of CMO International. There was also a CMO organization that was just over Golden Era Productions. It was called CMO Gold. So the CO, CMO Gold, commanding officer of CMO Gold would be there. So, I mean, sometimes when he walked into your area, there'd be 15 people with him. And those people, besides just listening to whatever he said, they were yes men to the, you know, the nth degree. So 
say, can you believe this guy? You know, this guy's not doing blah, blah, blah. Everybody's like, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I can't believe it, sir. What a criminal, sir. You know, uh, you will get this fixed right away, sir. That's how every single conversation went. You would never say, like, can you believe this guy? There would, when, there would not be a single person that would be like, I don't know, sir. I think he's got the right idea. That conversation never took place. So as soon as I was like, let's go, motherfucker. I'm going to let's throw down. I'll take you. I, it was like I just got scooped up and brought out of the building. And as these two dudes were escorting me out of the building, he said, can you believe that? He was going to punch me. And I said under my breath, you know, like, you fucking bet your ass I was, bitch. You know, like, fucking, hey, we were going to throw it out. You, you fucking hit me. I'm going to hit you back. Well, see, you're anyway. the, Mark, you're the rare person because I've heard countless stories of people that will just be submissive to that. Like, they'll just continuously take it. And because they believe, oh, I did something wrong. I, I deserve this. This is, this is acceptable. Well, yeah. And also... It's a numbers game. I was there for 15 years. I did that once. <laughs> so, you know, there was a, there was another several times that I talk about in the book where I did that. I was just like, okay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. You know, it, it was just this one. And maybe on those other occasions, maybe I really did genuinely believe that I, it was my fault. And you know how that is. I mean, my mom grew up on a farm and I think that's how she was raised. Like when I didn't do something I was supposed to do, she bounced me off one of the walls. But um, so getting getting beat up <laughs> wasn't anything new to me. Um, but when this this time he was already pissed before he showed up in my work area, he'd already he'd come from a bad meeting or. You know, someone pissed in his Cheerios. It was before he got to me when what he was all riled up about. I just pushed him. I just pushed him right over the edge. <laughs> and I could do that, too. I, I could be that guy. <laughs> if you're having a bad day and you come see me, I'm, I might just push you right over the edge. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so when he when he, he it was it was literally like he just exploded. Like I said something and he exploded. And, and just started punching and, and, and I think he thought I was going to take it. And I was like, no, not today, Charlie, this is, we're going to throw down. This is it. I'm going to, I want to, uh, I want to be the guy that punched your dumb ass out. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a, a, as far as you know, is there anyone that ever did kind of land a big old, big old swig on that guy? Just a I don't know of anybody else that did. After I left, I heard stories of guys that basically told him, if you come at me, like I'll, I've got, I've got a gun, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. You could carry a yeah. gun. He would allow that. Well, that was back in the eighties, back in the eighties, that place was like the wild, wild west. And Dave Miscavige wasn't big, big man on campus back then. There were other guys that were like gun nuts and, uh, you know, it really was like, like Hubbard, when Hubbard was running the Sea Org in the 60s and the 70s, he was around like shit would happen and he would hear about it and then you'd get busted. When he went off in the 80s, nobody knew where that guy was. And the people that were in charge were like, let's party. 
let's do this. This is our, it's our show now. And that's the kind of the crazy thing about Miscavige is Miscavige would talk to the dude that talked to Hubbard. So Miscavige wasn't in direct communication with Hubbard. He, there was a go-between. And that go-between was this guy named Pat Broker. And when Hubbard died, Pat Broker said, yeah, Ron put me in charge. Let's do this. Me and my wife are now in charge. We're going to run this thing. And David Miscavige was like, I don't think so. Like, I'm the one who controls all this stuff. You were just the go-between. And, and, and a lot of people don't really know what Hubbard said because Hubbard legitimately was batshit crazy the last several years of his life. And, and ironically, he was taking psychiatric drugs, <laughs> which is the best. You know, like this whole time, the psychiatrists are the, the evil overlords. And, and Zenu, that, Lord Zenu, the intergalactic dictator, which is like the biggest bad guy of all, he used the psychiatrists to implant all these ideas and Jesus and the, the holy, all the God and heaven and hell. That's all Zenu implanted humans with those ideas and this is all hubbard's written and lectured about all this craziness it's actually in this a lot of it's in that south park episode called uh trapped in the closet trapped in, trapped in the closet <laughs> that that's like a documentary that oh, south park episode that is, it a, is it's a, it's a masterpiece it is a masterpiece <laughs> anyway um so yeah the, he was hubbard himself in the end when he got that, when they did the opt autopsy of his body, they found psychiatric drugs in his blood. Antipsychotics. Damn. So damn. That's <laughs> and that's another thing. I mean, just in terms of like the stories they spin in Scientology, if you were to believe them, Hubbard was a master mariner. He was a master cinematographer. He was a master mixer. He was a master at spotting suppressives. He was a ma I mean, he was a basically everything that he did, he was a master of. And they have these magazines and they're called Ron Mags. And Scientology puts out these magazines of all these different things that he did and how he was basically a master at every single one. And of course, with the internet now, you can pick these things apart. You're like, Master Mariner, he was in the Navy. He got like, they took his ship away from him. They said, you can't bomb these islands that, that, you know, these are Mexican islands. You can't bomb them. Yeah. Um, you know, the, all these things that happen, like, so he, like Master Mariner, no, they took his command away. They said, you're nuts. You can't do that. Master audio recordist. I worked at Golden Era for 15 years. They had a team of like 30 to 40 people. All they were doing was cleaning up his recordings that he had done since the 50s. He recorded thousands and thousands and thousands of lectures. And there was a team of 40 people that spent 40 years trying to fix them. So if he was a master recordist, how do you fuck up 4,000 lectures? You know, like, no, dude didn't know how to mic. He didn't know how to record. He didn't know how to set levels. He didn't know how to, I mean... Dude, he wasn't a master mixer. He wasn't a master, master recordist. <laughs> and even the thing with the suppressives, like 
Hubbard wrote the book on the suppressive person, how to detect them, how to, you know, smoke them out, how to disconnect from them. Like he was the master at being able to spot a suppressive person. But then as the years went by, you find out his wife was a suppressive, <laughs> his, his kids were suppressive. <laughs> Every single person that he ever worked with in, in his entire life, they were all declared suppressive person. Like literally every single person. Um, the, perp, the people that he said or didn't say that were going to be in charge of Scientology after we left, oh, both suppressives. <laughs> the people that wow. basically took care of him for the last six years of his life turned out to be the biggest suppressives on the planet. And um, so it's just like he was a master bullshitter. At the end of the day, that is the takeaway. Uh, he was really good at bullshitting. Um, I don't think David Miscavige believes in Scientology. I think he he plays the game. And that's another thing about the people that are at the international headquarters. They Hubbard said Hubbard sent one of those guys that's still there. He sent him a dispatch like a. Um, he sent him a, a, a writing saying, I'm coming back on this day. Like, I'm going to die. I'm going to drop my body. That's what they call it in Scientology. They don't call it dying. They call it dropping the body. And Hubbard said, I'm going to drop the body and I'm going to come back on this day. And that day was, I'm pretty sure it was like in 2007, I want to say. And um, yeah, he didn't come back. <laughs> he missed a bus or a train somewhere in uh, in the... Orion galaxy or whatever, but yeah, no, he didn't come back. Isn't that the, that's the year. Hold on. Cause I'm trying to think, cause I'm trying to make a, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I'm going to come back the year Tom Cruise releases lions for lambs. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't happen. And that movie just bombed. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, what a, no, I, he, in the sea org, when you leave, when you, well, when you drop your body in the sea org, if you're in the sea org, they put out an issue, um, like a, a, a writing, and it basically says, uh, it's called an in memoriam. blah blah passed away. He was a great person. He did this for 20 years. He was this and this. Uh, blah is granted a 21-year leave of absence, and we will store his folders and blah, 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 blah. So, like, they they really do, like, they go all in on this idea that you're coming back. Um, as far as I know, the entire time that I was there, no one ever came back. Like yeah. people that died 21 years prior never showed back up. But um, well, that's sort of built into the I whole thing, right? Like you don't know, like, is there a way to know that it's someone that's coming back? Technically there is like you can, if you get up a certain way and in, in so Scientology has this bridge to total freedom. And on one side is training in Scientology. And on the other side is processing or the counseling in Scientology. And the processing goes like, it goes, you're clear. And then you go operating level, operating fate in level one. And it goes up to eight. And on the chart, it goes up to like 15, OT 15 or 18 or something or other. But Hubbard only did, he only wrote up up to eight. 
So Dave Miscavige keeps like playing around with this idea that like OT nine and 10 are going to be released, but there is no, no OT nine or 10. So if they do ever end up releasing something, it'll be something that David Miscavige found from Hubbard that he was like, well, this could be it. And then just, they just put it out, you know, but um, they basically, the concept is the higher you get in Scientology on your training and processing, then you have recall of all of your past lives. So like you've had a million past lives and you'll remember all of them. Like you'll remember being a space captain on another planet and you'll remember being the evil dictator on another planet and you know, whatever it is. And, um, and then you'll obviously remember like, Oh my God, I was in the Seward with Ron back in the fifties or the sixties. And, um, and so, yeah, and that's another thing. When I was at the international base, there was all kinds of people that thought they were Jesus. There was this one lady who used to always get headaches. She thought she was Abraham Lincoln. Um, I mean, I'm serious. I'm, I'm 100% this is legit. Like she had headaches and she was like, Oh, I think I was Abraham Lincoln. And that's why I get headaches. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of craziness <laughs> that is that kind of you buy into because that's what it's supposed to be. And so I think David Miscavige plays along because there's a whole bunch of these muckety mucks like the guys that know dirt on Dave or were like up to no good with him in the eighties doing, you know, shady stuff, like going to Vegas and just spending all Hubbard's money. <laughs> like those dudes could say, Hey, remember when we went to Vegas and we spent like a hundred thousand dollars of Hubbard's money? Like we shouldn't have done that. Um, those guys think Hubbard's coming back. So they're waiting for Hubbard to show up and then they're going to go, Ooh, you're never going to guess what Dave did. Ooh, he did this and he did that. And he changed a bunch of your writings and he canceled a bunch of your stuff. And so they're waiting for pop to come home so they can tell on little Davey and what all the bad stuff he's done. But um, guess what guys? Hubbard's not coming back. <laughs> no that's not that's not gonna happen no but mark they real, you don't believe they built that a mansion <laughs> we built a mansion for hubbard so at that international base there's a mansion on the top of that hill and there's some amazing drone flyover footage of hubbard's mansion it's called bv or beautiful view or bonnie view and um yeah it's like I don't exactly remember how much was spent. I'm going to say 20 million to build this mansion. And um, it has storage buildings that are part of the mansion for all of the furniture, tapestries, rugs, drapes, uh, everything that change every season. So the entire house is redecorated for spring and then redecorated for summer and then so on and so forth. Is that the place they, that, uh, is that the place that has where if you were to do like a, like an aerial shot, it almost looks like it has a, for when he does come back, it's, it's sort of like a come here. Like, like it, no, no, that's, that's, there's several of those. That's CST. That's a church of spiritual technology. 
There's one of those in the in New Mexico. There's one that's actually where Shelley Miscavige is at. Up the, there's a CST facility, Church of Spiritual Technology, in uh, Running Springs, California. We don't have one of those at the base, but um, but there's flyovers of all those facilities too. So if you just go on YouTube and say CST drone or int base drone, you'll see all these videos and you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. But this is the other crazy thing at the, at his house, at his mansion, they have all his clothes. Like everything he ever wore is there at that house. And they put it out on the bed every night. Like they put a different outfit out, lay it out on the bed for him. So for, like, for, like for like, when he does come back, he can. Yeah. Like, like they <laughs> did that today. Like there's a, there's a, there's an outfit on, on the bed. Oh my God. I, I want to see security camera footage of this. This needs to be released. Right. <laughs> and that's the crazy that to me, this, this is the stuff like we knew that when we were there, we knew this kind of stuff, but just pick it apart for a second. So there's this old fuddy duddy who's like 70 something big, tall, fat dude. He's going to come back 21 years. He's not going to be an old fuddy duddy, seven foot tall, fat dude. I was going to say, gonna be, I was going to say, yeah, how's that going to work? Is he going to go and be like, oh my God, I'm going to have to eat Kentucky fried chicken for 21 years to yeah. be able to be as fat as I was. And, yeah. and then he's going to show up and wear. And also, why is he going to wear some fuddy duddy 70 year old dude's clothes from 1967 <laughs> he's yeah. not gonna want to wear that <laughs> They're gonna be really baggy really baggy right <laughs> but, but 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 no no one like i never thought to ask that question when i worked there like well wait a minute <laughs> you just it's it's like everything is suspended disbelief which is like nope not gonna ask <laughs> yeah like and even if you did think if you did think of to ask that question You'd have to like bury that thought in the back back door of your mind. Like, don't think about that. Don't think about that because because yeah. they, they, then you're going to be walking around like you've got something to hide. Oh my god, I thought Hubbard was fat. I don't think that was a nice thought to have about Hubbard. <laughs> yeah, because you're worried that uh, fucking Miscavige is going to come around a corner and fucking slug you one. Oh uh, yeah, the thought police. That's a yeah. That's another big thing. Thought police. Um. You know, even people that were like, every once in a while, you'd have somebody who's like mom wrote to them and was like, we haven't talked to you in several years and we, we don't know what ha what's happened. So that person is called PTS, a potential trouble source. So you lose privileges. Like if you if you could drive a motorcycle and you drove around the property on a motorcycle um, if your mom wrote you a letter like, what the fuck, man, Scientology won't let you talk. Boom, you can't drive a motorcycle anymore. Because now you're a potential trouble source. A potential trouble source is someone who gets in accidents, they get sick, um, they just attract trouble. Because they're connected to a suppressive person, which is the, the, this girl's mother who's like, why haven't you written me a letter in five years? Um, so when you... When you have somebody in your life that causes you trouble like that, you got to disconnect from that person. And when you're there and you're like, fuck, I can't drive my motorcycle anymore. Like that property is 500 acres. It's like, it's literally like working at Disneyland. So 
if your office is on one side of the property and you have to go check up on something that's being done on the other side of the property, it could take you 30 minutes just to walk to another building. So if you have a motorcycle, it'll take you two minutes. And now because your mom wrote you a letter, you can't ride your motorcycle. So it's almost like that's literally what you're thinking about when you're working at that property. Like, yeah, I'm going to write my mom a letter telling her not to write me anymore because she's fucking making my life miserable, more miserable than it already is by like just causing trouble for me. So people would disconnect from, you'd hear about people disconnect from, from their parents all the time at that property. And, and I, even since I've left, I've had, I would say at least 20 different families contact me and say, do you know my son? Did you know my daughter? Did you know my uncle? Did you know my cousin? Like they know their cousin works there, but they haven't heard from him in 15 years. And it's so heartbreaking. And even when I tell him, I was like, oh yeah, that dude was crazy. You know, he did this. And I would try to tell him like a story or anything I knew about the person. And then they'd be like, well, we think he has cancer because the last time he sent a picture of us, he had lost like 50 pounds and he was stick thin. And it's just like, oh God, you know, like... It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it's all it, it's all messed up, and I love that you uh, mention a motorcycle because that's the uh, that's the cover of your book, and that's that's supposed to be you, right? Like that's that's supposed to be you on the motorcycle. Yeah, the guy. So that's the first chapter of the book. I basically escape on a motorcycle as soon as I drive out of the property. The security SUV from the Scientology property there is just following me. And they basically ran, run me off the road as we're trying, as I'm trying to escape. And then somebody who's driving down the highway sees this happen and calls the police. And the security people hear that they have a, a police scanner in their truck. They hear the police call go out and then they hightail it back to the Scientology property. And then the police escort me to safety. That's like the cliff notes version it fills an entire chapter that's what happened and that's the only way that i was able to escape if those police wouldn't have showed up i'd probably be there right now to this day i'd probably still be there and that was in january of 2005 when that happened and um and the book basically goes from when i got into scientology what the scientology schools i went to working at the international headquarters and like the highlights of 15 years of craziness that are believable. And then um, how I escape and then how I get my wife, how I help my wife to escape. And they, it try, they intercepted her as well before, uh, while she was already escaped, but on her way to where I was. And um, it's crazy. It literally is uh you would you're not going to believe it and if you even if you've seen the show like the show's got some crazy stuff on it if you see the show and then you read the book you'll it'll or vice versa if you read the book and then watch the show um they complement each other well but um yeah it's just it's it's even when i talk to people now like i have a, i have a whole new life that was this is all a lifetime ago i have a whole new life and every once in a while, I'll run into somebody and be like, you look really familiar. And I'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
And um, then finally they'll be like, oh, you were on that show. And they'll be like, tell me something. And then I'll tell them a story. And they're just, they're speechless. Like, no way. I'll be like, yeah, dude. That was like, like I said, that was like a Tuesday. <laughs> and, and really what people should know, besides David Miscavige is a little troll, but uh, the other takeaway, and Hubbard is a pro bullshitter, is that Scientology really destroys families. That's like really what they're in the business of doing. And I haven't talked to my sister since 2005. I haven't talked to my half-brother since 2004, I guess. They're still very um, active in it. They're still very active. Yeah. Yeah. My mom told her family, which no one in her family is involved in Scientology. Um, she told her family that if she talked to me or my wife, that it would risk all of mankind's future eternity. Like, literally, if she talked to us, the world could end. Like, and earthquakes and shit? Like, who knows? The Armageddon is going to happen. Wow. If she, send, if she sends me a birthday card. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, so, yeah, we haven't talked. It's, uh, it's been 2005. And I can't wait for the day. You know, something's going to happen. Some, some, the, you can't. Like the karma train is on its way. It's gonna, it's gonna get to that state, the Scientology station, and it's gonna get unloaded. And, you know, it's gonna be, I'm gonna have like a whole book of told you so tickets. To hand <laughs> well, out. well but, this uh, is, <laughs> this is something I love to ask people that were involved in it and that escaped and, and see where they, where they fall in this category of, do you think that in, in, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, I'm 27 currently, do you think that there will be a time where there is nobody in Scientology and it literally dismantles itself? I, I think, I think it, it will. I, I mean, they had, I mean, I was there in the nineties and through the two thousands. The 90s were like the heyday. Like they probably had 100,000 members in the 90s. And when we would, as, where I worked at Golden Era Productions, we put on these events that would take place. There was seven of them, actually. It would take place throughout the world um, every year, seven different events. We were hard pressed to get 3,000 people to show up to one of those events. I mean, this is like, we're celebrating the biggest thing in all of Scientology. And they would spend weeks and weeks and weeks, just hundreds of people banging on phones, calling people up to get them to these events. And they'd get 3,000 people to show up. <laughs> so you're like, if there's 100,000 people, we should be able to get more than 3,000 to show up. I think, I think they're probably in like the 20,000 range of people that are like, I'm a Scientologist. I love Scientology. And I like get auditing or I do auditing or, you know, there's probably 20,000 of those people out there. And probably a thousand of those people are just crazy rich. And those are the people that are giving money to Scientology and like millions of dollars. And they, Scientology doesn't, they don't have a lot of overhead because they're a church, quote unquote. They don't pay as the same taxes everybody else pays. They don't pay the, you know, the same, all the, the things that make you have to do, you know, spend money as a business 
they get away with paying a lot of that. And they're not paying the people that work there. That's for sure. I mean, if you put in 120, like I worked there for 15 years. And in that, I got my social security statement. I made 29K in 15 years. Working 120 hours a week. So like 29,000 for the total 15 years. So when I was, when I left, I made more, more money in like six months than I did in 15 years. Just working for the rates that people pay for the stuff I do. So, uh, so they're not spending money on, on, uh, labor. No. They got a lot of cheap labor, Yeah. but, um, yeah, at some point, and also that's why I encourage people to speak out. Like if you've got a story, tell your story. And, and there's a, when I, when I came out with my book in 2009, there wasn't any other former member books out. There was a lot of books from people who researched Scientology or journalists that were investigating Scientology. But there was no one from the international headquarters that wrote a book. And now there's like 15 books from people that were there and another 30 books of people that were all over other parts of Scientology. And when you read them, it's like, oh, there's like a common thread of crazy that's just through all these people that were in all different parts of Scientology. And we had no idea. I had no idea that people low in Scientology were experiencing a lot of the same craziness that we were experiencing at the international headquarters. I just had no idea. I never, I never talked to those people. I never was around those people. I was working at a place in the middle of the desert in California. And uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot of uh, discussions going on. And you can't talk to any. That's another thing in Scientology in terms of the thought police. If you have any kind of disagreements or you have any grievances like, hey, I don't think this is okay. You're not supposed to talk to anybody about it. You're supposed to you're supposed to write a report and, you, and then you send it to the organization, a, a, a certain person in the organization. And what they do is they just use that as a dossier on you and the other person that you wrote up. So in the when you're when it's all said and done and you leave, they're like, well, this person got into a fight with Blotty Blah on June 18th and. And, and if, if, if the person that I wrote the report on leaves, then they say, yeah, he supposedly he punched Mark back in uh, 1997, you know, like, so they just use, they just use the internal reports for their intelligence operation. And, and a lot of times nothing happens when you're there to, to sort out your grievances, but you're not allowed to discuss them with anybody. And that's actually, if you want to leave Scientology and you discuss it with another person, Hubbard listed that as a suppressive act. So you can actually be declared a suppressive person if you say, hey, Bill, this place sucks eggs. Let's get out of here. <laughs> that's a suppressive act. So they really, I mean, Hubbard, Hubbard spent decades tweaking the system so that he could keep it going. And Muscat the all Miscavige has done is he's just added lawyers, private investigators, and thugs to the mix. And that really has, you know, fortified the whole crazy cult aspect of this thing. So that they 
you know, it's hard to catch them out. But um, I think they're doing enough wrong in enough places that they're going to do something somewhere that's just going to push it over the edge. And if they lose their tax exemption, like that's a shortcut. Like if they lose tax exemption, they're done. It's over. Like that's it. They're, they're screwed. Cause then they, they have to, they have to pay back taxes. And, and they, they, when they, when the IRS granted them tax exemption, they owed a billion dollars in 1993 in October, 1993, they owed 1 billion with a B dollars in taxes. So if the IRS didn't give them tax exemption, they would have folded in the 90s because they just they didn't have a billion dollars. Even then, they didn't have a billion dollars. Yeah, that's why so, that was that's why that was like one of their biggest events. Right. The the war is yeah. over. They called it a war. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was, it was it was a war. And also they learned a lot during that war. So like the IRS, the IRS was jacking up their shit big time. Like the IRS was was coming at them hardcore and different government agencies were definitely messing with them. And. And basically what they did was they just made it personal. They just were like, we don't need to go after the IRS. We need to go after individual IRS agents like. That's this. That's their strategy. Don't mess with who gives who gives a shit about the IRS. But. Bill that works at the IRS, uh, he's cheating on his wife with Cindy, and he goes down and does hookers and blow on Friday nights. Uh, let's concentrate on that. And they just did that with every single individual IRS agent. And they filed lawsuits against individual IRS agents. I mean, let's not forget, Scientology, to this day, Scientology perpetrated the largest infiltration in the United States government. In its history, a lot of people don't know that. If you go on the Google machine and and, uh, and type in uh, Operation Snow White, um, and there's a ton of different operations, and this is the same operation as Special Affairs, the uh, the or, uh, Office of Special Affairs. Um, they used to be called the Guardian's Office, and um, they they did all. They were like basically spy versus spy guys. They were like fake. ID and fake government badges and t going into government files and making copies of anything that had any relation to Scientology and getting dirt on people and all kinds of stuff. They still do that kind of stuff to this day. They just use PIs and lawyers to do all that so that there's a like a level of separation from them. But um, but yeah, th th this is. Um, they know how to fight. They know how to fight and they know how to fight dirty and that they have a lot of money to do it is, um, you know, you see these things, these big high profile cases that happen and people that did bad things and somehow, you know, they get away with it. If you, if you've seen that, um, I'm trying to think where, what it's on. There's a, a new documentary on uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I haven't seen it, but it's on Netflix. It's called, uh, I think it's called Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. When I was watching that, I, all I could think about was Scientology. Like this dude was up to 
he was up to so much no good. But he had all these politicians, local politicians and attorney generals. And he had enough people in his pocket that every time it looked like he was he was done, man. They had him dead to rights. I mean, they had like dozens and dozens and dozens of girls, underage girls that said he did this. He got out. He got every time he got off with nothing, a little, not even a little hand slap. And then finally they got him and it was like, oh, he's going to go to jail for life. And he got he was in jail for like a few hours. They got out the next day on bail. Done. And and I kept thinking that's what Scientology does. They give they donate to the local police departments and they uh, they support the attorney general and they throw a party. I mean, even when I was there, they were getting their asses handed them down in Clearwater. There was this. Uh, wrongful death suit and there was all this stuff happening down in Clearwater no matter what they did they walked the sidewalk they just you know cut uh, across the street right just out of the sidewalk boom they were in the newspaper they just Scientology was just getting it from all angles and Miscavige was telling us yeah we fixed it we just uh we had a party and we had John, John Travolta there he just danced with all the politicians wives <laughs> Like literally bragging, bragging about it. Just have Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, just have them go to a party and then, you know, have John Travolta dance with the wives. That, I mean, if you're a local politician in some little county in Florida and your wife got to dance with the dude from Greece and Saturday Night Fever and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's. That picture is in the in the living room of that dude's house, and that's the highlight, and that's the story they tell when anybody comes over. Oh yeah, that's uh, Meredith. She got to dance with John Travolta. That that dude's not going to light them up when they come asking for a favor. He's going to be like, "Absolutely, I got you. I got you." So that's the kind of things they do, and they know they know how to play. They know how to play dirty, and. Um, I don't know if they they haven't really been able to use Tom Cruise so much lately, but um, but they use John Travolta. They use their their B celebrities that are floating around. They use them when they need them. They they get them to show up and shake hands with the police chief and ride in the float. They have a thing in Hollywood every year. They do a Hollywood Christmas parade, and they had uh, you can look on the internet. There's a sheriff, the Los Angeles County Sheriff. His name was Lee Baca. And he was the sheriff in L.A. for, I don't know, I want to say at least a decade, at least that I know of. And they would have him sit in that float. And they had they had this girl, uh, she used to be on a TV show, CSI, Sophia Milos. And uh, she was a big, big uh, TV uh, actress. And uh, she's sitting there right next to Lee Baca in the Scientology Christmas float for the solid for the uh hollywood christmas parade and that's the kind of things they do it's weird that they participate in something like christmas because like i don't know like that would that'd be i don't know if, for some reason that doesn't add up in my head like why is it's, why is scientology a religion uh, like in and of itself acknowledging christmas which is being you know which is part of christianity and and it, it it doesn't add up to me yeah no it's 100 percent 
Um, well, here's the other thing. And this is a, a, a thing that a lot of Scientologists don't understand. It's like people are like, what about like if you if you know somebody that's in Scientology, you're going to say you believe in aliens and Xenu and all that. They have no idea about any of that stuff because you don't find out about Xenu until operating Phaeton level three, which is like it's like three hundred thousand dollars deep in the auditing side of Scientology, not to mention any of the processing. I mean, not the training. Um, so if you. If you're a Scientologist and somebody says, oh, you believe in space aliens? They're like, no, I don't believe in space aliens. Are you crazy? Like, they don't have any idea that that's part of Scientology. And when you get up in the higher OT levels, there's, there's writings where uh, Hubbard says that Jesus was a pedophile. Like, he actually says that in one of his writings. And when he says, when you learn about that Xenu implanted and heaven and hell and Jesus and all that. So if you were like all the way up in OT level eight, then you should be like, oh yeah, no, Christmas is, that's total bull. But no, I want to, that OTA wants to get a present. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, like I, it's like, well, yeah, I know it's bullshit, but I mean, still like giving gifts is cool and getting stuff is cool. So for sure, you know, like, they don't, I, there's, that's where, when people say it's a religion, I'm kind of like, ah, I don't know, I worked there for 15 years. A lot of that, a lot of the religion stuff was for show and for the IRS. Like in the early 90s, we were doing stuff all the time. And it was like, we got to do this because the IRS won't give us tax exemption if we don't. So we have to do it. Like there's different there's there's a there's a wing of Scientology that's called the Association for Better Living and Education, ABLE. And they have these groups that they run that are called social betterment corporations, which is the way to happiness, which has like a, this little pamphlet that they hand out. It's like, don't murder people, brush your teeth, take a bath, be nice to your parents, respect religious beliefs of others. It's like a little guide to better living the way to happiness and then they have uh applied scholastics which is kind of like the scientology um division that's supposed to infiltrate the education systems of the world and then they have criminon which is a rehabilitation program for criminals and then they have narconon which is like a drug rehabil re drug rehabilitation uh program which is really at the end of the day it's a bunch of Scientology beginner courses with the purification rundown, which is where you go sit in a sauna all day and take a bunch of vitamins and oil. And that's how Hubbard said you can get all the drugs out of your body that you've basically when you go to the dentist and get Novocaine or you do coke or heroin, it residual amounts of drugs stay in your body, which has been proven to be total utter bullshit by scores of medical people anyway um able this organization is a sea org unit the people that work at able are in the sea organization they have signed billion year contracts but because the irs said well that's not church that's sec that's sec it's a it's a non-church activity it's this non-profit but it's not part of scientology because they're basically trying to say no 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 these are the works of Elwin Hubbard. This has nothing to do with Scientology. 
Well, when they said that, the IRS is like, well, then you have to pay those people minimum wage. You can't pay those guys 40 bucks a week. So like when I was in the Sea Org, I got paid like anywhere from like 900 to $1,500 in a year. But the first year I was in the Sea Org, I worked at Able, and I made like $6,000 that one year because they were paying us for like an eight-hour day for five days a week, <laughs> minimum wage. But then they'd make us pay for our food and our lodging. They basically make us pay for all the stuff that the Sea Org would normally pay for. They made us pay for all that stuff out of our minimum wage, <laughs> which they owned the buildings or the places that we had to pay for. So it was a racket. But anyway, but they did all that just to appease the IRS. And they have other, they still have other things like that that are in place to this day where certain people do certain things or work at cer certain organizations um, that are separate on paper than Scientology, but they're all doing the same thing. It's all, Scientology is the, um, is word one, no matter at where you work at any of those places, they just couch it a little differently um, for the optics of how it looks from the uh, outside world. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I don't want anyone to misinterpret because, because trust me, I know uh, Christmas is one hundred percent a commercial holiday more than it is sure. anything else. But it, it it just is odd to me that 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 someone. Uh, or something as uh, as deeply rooted in its own beliefs as Scientology would even s acknowledge or celebrate Christmas. That's all I'm uh, getting at there. But yeah, it, none of it none of it makes sense at all. I mean, the stuff that that does make sense is all the negativity that you hear coming out of Scientology, and all the stuff that you do hear from Scientology itself is uh, uh, it just is all fabricated and. And, uh, you know, from from all those numbers that were at those events of millions and and and, and oh, yeah, all this stuff of people that we've helped and and, and all this stuff to, uh, you know, something as simple as what's going on right now in the country with these protests. You know, I follow Ron Miscavige and he um, he does his live streams every once in a while. And they were talking, I think, on the latest episode about how they're not even you know, with, with these protests, they're not even actively participating in the protests of handing out those pamphlets you were just talking about, the way to happiness. Um, and But like, isn't that counterintuitive or, or, or it's going against what Scientology believes in? Because it, like, I thought you're supposed to be helping us and yet you're not even out there trying to do your part. You know, it's... Yeah, they, they usually will figure out, <clears throat> they'll usually try to figure out how to get a photo op out of, like natural disasters and, you know, certain um, uh, emergencies, local emergencies, floods, fires. <clears throat> um, I think this is one of those things where I think they, they know that if they try to take advantage, like if they, if they try to do something or insert themselves into this thing, it could really turn around on them. And, and they've, They've tried here and there to do things, and 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 sometimes they do show up at in Puerto Rico when they have a hurricane, or you know, they went when I was there. They went down to nine eleven and they were passing out water bottles, and you know, like, and then they get a picture of their people in their yellow volunteer minister shirts handing out water bottles, and the you know the 
remains of the towers are in the background or something like that. And then they'll use that photo for the rest of time. I was going to say, they'll, but, um, they'll, they'll blow that thing out of proportion. Oh yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> they made, I want to say there was probably two years of event videos that we produced that had to do with what they did at nine 11, what they did, the people that went there, they like won awards. There was t- two or three people that went down there. They got awards for doing that. And then Tom Cruise got involved with the helping the people that were in like the first responders got sick. They got some weird device or some weird um, disease from breathing all the burnt up asbestos and all that. So Tom, they made a video about how Tom Cruise is helping those people. I mean, they, <laughs> that, that rock was being squeezed for a long time. They got every drop out of it. <laughs> so I think I I just think they haven't figured out and this is a real interesting time for them as well because like Hubbard talks about he talks about like different people and they have this thing called the tone scale and it goes from like body death to like exhilaration or enthusiasm or you know it has all these steps in between and one of these steps is called 1.1 covert hostility and he says that homosexuals are covertly hostile that's what they are that's hubbard saying that's it and and in the entire time i was in scientology they were very 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 homophobic and david miscavige particularly there's two executives that were in scientology the executive director international who's the guy who's basically in the boss of all of the Scientology organizations worldwide. And the guy that was the head of that organization, the Commodore's Messenger Org International, those two executives, David Miscavige would joke about on a daily, if not multiple times per day, how they were fucking each other in the ass full time. That's what he would say. We would show up to a meeting and he, he would say, uh, did you guys, uh, how long did you guys stay up last night? Like, that's how he'd start the meeting. And he would constantly pick on them, so much so that at one point they were both married and had wives. And over the years, they'd both gotten divorced. David Miscavige made them move into the same room and sleep in a bunk bed together. So that he could then say, uh, what were you guys doing last night? Because they slept in the same room. <laughs> like, super, super homophobic. Yeah. And, um, and, and if there was somebody who got a security check, this is actually a really good story. I told this to Aaron Smith Levin. But there was a guy who was in a meeting with David Miscavige. And this is how homophobic David Miscavige is. We were having a meeting, and the guy said something or did something in the meeting, and it caught Dave Miscavige's eye. And he said, I want you to get that guy and put him on the uh, e-meter give him a security interrogation. And uh, the guy went off, they put him on the e-meter and he revealed that in the meeting with David Miscavige, he was daydreaming that David Miscavige was giving him a blowjob. And that guy was escorted off the property and driven away within the hour, gone. Just because he confessed that he had a thought that David Miscavige was giving him a blowjob. He was done, out of the Sea Org, off of the property, gone, done. 
Was he probably so, sent to uh was he probably sent to this place called the hole? No, no, no. I know the dude. He's a he's a I know him. I I'm I'm friends with him on Facebook. Uh, okay. He's like he literally got a free ticket out of there. And and this dude, the 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 funniest thing of the whole thing is like I don't know what this guy's preferences are, but he's the most like uh <laughs> He's the most heterosexual dude that I know. <laughs> so I just thought it was like, he just didn't want to be there anymore. And he knew that was like, like the express ticket out of there. But, but regardless, um, that's, he, that is how homo, homophobic David Miscavige is. Like this guy just thought about um, that, this guy and him, and he was gone. Like just, I'm not going to be near that person. And that's how... That's how it was the entire time I was there. So now they kind of try to spin it like, no, 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 no. You can be gay and be in Scientology. No, 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 no. You can be uh, Jewish and be in Scientology. You can do, you know, it, they, no, you can't. When you get there and you start doing Scientology, you find out like, oh, yeah, no, you can't do that. But to get you in, yeah, sure, whatever you want. Yeah, you can do that, you know to get some money out of you and uh, put you on the membership uh, list, you could be whatever you want to be. <laughs> they'll, they'll try to make you into a Scientologist no matter what. Isn't it funny how it's funny how they'll pick and choose what they want to keep and what they don't want to keep. So in your case, you try to escape and they try to get you back. They want you to come back. Yet this guy tells just of a thought that he had of David Miscavige going down on them and they're like get the hell out <laughs> like yeah. like well it's really what it's really and that's that's how it was when hubbard was there it's whatever the boss says yeah if hubbard says you're out of here you're out of here if dave says you're out of here you're out of here in my case i had seen and done a ton of stuff there and i was actually like i produced i mean i was uh i was a contributing member of that property i did stuff and i you know, I did good work for when I did work, I did good work. So, and that is funny. They want me to stay. They want me to stay. I, we had, I had people calling me full time. Oh, come back. Dave Miscavige says you're going to get all the people you need, all the money you need for your area. Everything's going to be awesome. You're not in trouble. The people that were messing with you are in trouble, you know, all that. And basically until I told them, go fly a kite, I was like their number one, you know, person. We definitely, we need you to come back. And then th they put up a hate site on me. And evidently I was a career criminal from the age of seven. <laughs> you know, it's just like, which is like wow. exactly when I got involved with Scientology. <laughs> going to say you got into a crime at a young age there, Mark. <laughs> I know, but that's, no, I kid you not. My dad, my dad was telling me a story and he said, oh, I, uh, they put up a video about you the other day. I never have been to their sites. I don't read the sites. I know the sites. They put up these hate sites. Um, the hate sites are for the people they put them up about. It's not like no one pays attention to these websites. And they really want it just to get under your skin and, you know, get you all worked up. So I've never been to the sites. But my dad, he went to one of the sites. Like, oh, I put a new video up about you. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, great. And I was like, you know, I don't read those. I don't want to get all worked up. I don't care what they say. It's all nonsense. He goes, yes, evidently you tried to drown your sister and your mom when you were seven. And I was like, 
what? It's like, yeah, you were in the pool and you were roughhousing it. You tried to drown them. And I was like, they do know that I was in Scientology for my entire life up until I left. So whatever I learned or did, or I went to Scientology schools, you know, it's like all that. It just doesn't make any sense. This person was a criminal. It's like, well, he went to Scientology schools and he worked at the international headquarters of Scientology. Uh-oh. We lost him. Hold on. I think he might have accidentally hung up on himself. <laughs> Let's see here. Let's get him back. Live and in the moment, folks. Live and in the moment. Shit, did I lose you? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know what happened. My phone has been oh. out of my hands. It's just been uh, resting oh. on the table. No, well, mine was on charge. Where did you, where did I get up to? Sorry about that. No, no, no. You were uh, talking about how you had just you know gone to Scientology school and yeah. Know. Anyway, every person who leaves and speaks out gets one of these hate websites put up on them. And I mean, when Leah and Mike did the show, and Ron Miscavige uh, put out that book. I think they set world records. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Leah. I have a list. I'm gonna pull it up real quick. It's the most awesome thing ever. Um, Leah, and between Leah and Ron Miscavige and Mike Rinder, they have thousands of hate websites and and domains. So like Mike Dash Rinder, Leah Dash Remini. Ron Dash Miscavige and then dot com dot info dot org dot ca dot ru. I mean, Scientology has registered thousands of domains and has them pointing to these. Yeah, here's my list. Okay, Leah has 88 individual sites, just domains or sites dedicated to her. Mike Rinder has 25. Okay, David Miscavige's father, Ron Miscavige Sr., had 522 websites or name domains registered against him. Yeah, that, so, that one makes the most sense because of who he is. Yeah, yeah, and they're just, I mean, who is ronmiscavige.com? <laughs> ronmiscavigeconfessions.com oh my god ronmiscavigefacts.com i mean it's ridiculous and and they're spending they're spending maybe 20 30,000 a month i mean they they have besides the hate sites they also have like like david miscavige has hundreds and hundreds of sites himself to to redirect people. So if they search David Miscavige, they're going to end up on one of these hundreds and hundreds of domains that's going to point to David Miscavige's actual, uh, you know, Scientology curated page that is like, oh, the sun shines out of his backside and he was born on a pedestal of gold. <laughs> yeah, and the unfortunate thing is because I just, um, I have Google. I did a, a trusty old Goog search. And the unfortunate thing about Ron Miscavige is when you type in his name into Google, the first thing that pops up is ronmiscavigebook.com, which is Scientology created. 
and uh, you have to scroll down a little bit, and then you'll get to his actual website, which is therealronmiscavige.com. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that that that's the case. I would, uh, I don't know, like if is it possible to reach out to like how does like how does this work? How do they how do they make it so that that site will be the first that pops up? Scientology spends hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. That's what it is on Google on Google ads. Wow. So, I mean, if, if eddygreen.com is hosting <laughs> a bunch of stuff and you have one client that's giving you a million dollars a year on advertisements, it's hard. Oh, I mean, Google's big now. They should just say, come on, seriously. Yeah. Come on. Scientology. Need, it's that, that's not a big deal to them, but I mean, they have people that work at Google. That's another thing. Um, when Mike Rinder left, so Mike Rinder, he used to be over the Office of Special Affairs. So that's the intelligence arm of Scientology. Mike Rinder used to run that, that place. So he knows all the lawyers. He knows about all the private investigators. And OSA, so the Office of Special Affairs, is in Los Angeles. It's in, on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, 6331 Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, I think it's the 11th floor. Um, they have PIs and lawyers. They're doing their stuff. They go and investigate Eddie Green. Eddie Green works here. He does this. This is who's had on the show. This is where he lives. This is how much his house is worth. Um, this is what he drives. This is his license plate. This is where he eats. This is what he buys at the store. They know everything. They write a report. They send it to Mike Rinder. Mike Rinder reads that figures out what they should do. And then he writes the response and sends that to Dave Miscavige. And Dave Miscavige and David Miscavige every day has 12 to 15 feet of reports in his office that are from all of the areas of Scientology. And the first thing he does each day, did anybody blow, which is escape? And what? where's the OSA daily report? Because that says everything about the people that are exposing Scientology and the people that escaped are going to probably end up exposing Scientology. So that's, that's, those are the, that's the first thing he deals with. Well, when he gets that report, he then tells Mike Rinder, are you crazy? Don't have him do this. Don't have him do that. Do this, do that, do the other thing. And then he, Mike Rinder, modifies his response and then sends that back down to OSA. Okay, so Mike Rinder had dossiers of all these different people that they, he was communicating back and forth with OSA and with David Miscavige. Well, when he left, he had a thumb drive that had a whole bunch of those dossiers on it. And so he was like, hey, uh, I was cleaning up my stuff and I found this thumb drive and it had your dossier on it. So he sent me my folder. They had all of my phone records. Like, who I called, how long we talked, and what we talked about. Uh. And I was like, I think I need to switch to Verizon. I think, there's, <laughs> I think there's too many Scientologists working over at that Sprint place. <laughs> oh my God, Mark, Mark. Yeah, I'm telling you, like that's the kind of stuff that, that like if you read my book, you're going to be like, Oh, you put up with a lot. 
dude put up with a lot of nonsense. I'm going to well, read your book. A- after we left, they did a lot more nonsense. <laughs> I mean, they had our phone records. They had, um, they had everything. They had PIs following us everywhere for years. Basically, the, we lived in Los Angeles from about 2005 to 2011. When we moved to Colorado, they filmed it. Like I'm driving a rider truck down the highway. They had cars driving along next to us with cameras out the window, filming us moving. Like, I kid you not, that happened. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that. Sorry, go ahead. Oh my gosh. I don't. So I'm not touching my phone. So I think he might be holding his phone up to his ear or getting a little excited here. Or it's David Miscavige and he's hacking into our call here and fucking it up. You there? <laughs> yes, Mark. I think it's David Miscavige himself. I think he just doesn't you know, want us talking. It's so funny you say that. <laughs> I was on a radio show called Coast to Coast. And, um, and I was on a landline. I'm on a cell phone now, but I was on a landline, a hard landline. And the dude who was doing the interview, like his internet was going out, his phones were cutting out and he had never, ever had a problem. And that's exactly what he said. (laughs) He said, Oh man, I, we promoted the show. We shouldn't have done that. They knew about it. And he was like, are you like you maybe you were hacked i was like oh come on man i wasn't <laughs> hacked and that was another thing so they had our phone records they were sending pis okay well i got this dossier whenever mike rinder left he left years after i left so for like two or three years i was like i swear there's freaking pis following us i swear i think they're taking our garbage you know, like, and people are just like, oh, you're paranoid. All ex-Scientologists, all ex-Sea Org people are super paranoid, man. You're all crazy. Anyway, so, of course, when I get the dossier in, in Office of Special Affairs, they call, when they take your garbage, that's called special collection. So they have all this nomenclature, which they use, because they don't write, we took Headley's garbage. They don't say that. They say, they say special special collection occurs on Thursdays and we'll see what we can gain from that. (laughs) Anyway, but the great thing is that, um, so when I first left, I was posting stuff on the internet and I was going, so when they, when people escape, they catch them and they bring them back. And when you escape, they call that a blow. Well, there's people that worked at the international headquarters that have blown like four or five times. They've people that have escaped from there and been captured and brought back. And then they go, they're good. They interrogate them. They put them, make them the deputy, deputy D weeder. And then they do that for a few years. And then they think, oh, it's all fine again. That person's fine. And then they try to escape again and then they get them back anyway. So I wanted to make it clear that I was never coming back and I was blown for good. And that's what I would post as on the internet blown for good. Anyway, so a lot of my dossiers for a while, they didn't know who I was because I was just posting under this pseudonym, Blown for Good. But at the same time I was posting, 
there was this little show called South Park that was coming out. And when South Park came out, they called that Spark. So a lot of the documents say BFG and Spark. And it has a whole thing about me or whoever they think it is. And then it has a whole thing about Trey Parker and, um, and the other dude over Matt, is it Matt? Matt and Trey over yeah. at South Park. And like they had, they were like trying to get somebody, a PI to get a job at the catering company that delivered the food to South Park. Like they were literally, they could not figure out a way into that place. <laughs> <laughs> and South Park's garbage was just going into the garbage with everybody else that worked at that, wherever they worked, at the building or whatever it was. And um, so it was, so special collection was not feasible, I think is what they say in there. But, uh, but yeah, so my dossier was mixed because just because South Park was happening at the same time, I got lots of juicy info on what they were trying to do with South Park as well, which is kind of fun. Damn. Yeah. That episode, that episode is uh that's a big old crash course. I mean, you watch that episode and I think you'll, you'll, uh, you know, I, I obviously strongly advise doing more research, but that episode and it's, it's because it's so mainstream. It's because it's so comedic, you know, it's, uh, I, ah, everything about that episode is, is, is beautiful, especially John Travolta. I love uh, whoever's voicing John Travolta is just hysterical right? where he's like, come on, man, get out of the closet. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that episode, I'll tell you that episode as, as funny as it is and everything else, that episode was key for my deprogramming because that episode came out just like a month or two after I think I want to say it came out right after uh, my wife and I escaped. And it, you learn the entire time you're in Scientology, you basically are told if you find out about the upper levels of Scientology before you're ready for it, you will die of pneumonia. So if someone tells you the story of Xenu and you're like a green weenie in Scientology, you'll die of pneumonia. That's how it is. And that's why you're not allowed to talk about the upper levels with people who haven't been on the upper levels or even people that have done the upper levels. So when I watched that show and my wife was OT5, so she was past the Xenu stuff. When that episode was on, we watched it and I was like, is this fucking shit true? <laughs> and she was like, yep. And I was like, no fucking way. Like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You fucking read Xenu and the Dick Overlord, all this nonsense, and you fucking believe that shit? Anyway, but then I thought, but then the part of me that was still been in Scientology my whole life was like, I'm fucking going to die of pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> so I still, that, I knew, I was like, that's bullshit. And then I was still thinking to myself, holy fuck, I'm going to die of pneumonia. <laughs> anyway. The next morning I woke up, I didn't even have a sniffle. I was like, fuck, it's all bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, that was it. I was done. I knew. I was like, it's not just one thing that's bullshit. Yeah. I saw all the crazy bullshit happening that where we worked. But now, and I, now I know the whole everything's bullshit because nothing happened. And uh, they believe in fucking space aliens. So it was just like, it was just like a one-two punch. As soon as I woke up the next day and I was good, I was like, 
Okay, done. Let's 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 uh, let's tell people about it. And really, there's a lot of people that left. At, even after we left, um, there was a lot of people that we were talking to that were gonna speak out. We're gonna tell their stories. The church paid them. Church had went around any person that had ever worked at the int base and escaped or got kicked out or anything. They went around, wrote checks, had these people sign new NDAs. And if you worked, if you worked at the end base and escaped or left, they were just like, forget it. He's a suppressive person. They just said, told Scientologists, don't ever talk to that person ever again. That you never got paid. And so that's how people could just say whatever they wanted to say. Well, when you sign an NDA and you get a check for fifty thousand dollars, you got to keep your mouth shut. You can't. Uh, that makes it a little bit more hard to talk about what went on there, unless you saw something that was illegal, and there's no NDA you can sign that says you can't say like this person committed a crime. There's no. I mean, I guess that's a gray area, but. Nine times out of 10, you can err on the side of saying, yeah, this person committed a crime and that's not covered in the NDA. But um, I'm not a lawyer, so you might have to legal, you might have to legal zoom that shit to find out for sure. But but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's how they got. That's how they silenced a ton of people is they just wrote them checks. Damn. I don't know, Mark. I don't know this whole thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty much done for, for good. I think, you know, between and, you know, if this podcast episode helps anybody, but you know, I don't know if necessarily anyone is actually even contemplating joining Scientology at this point, but you know, I know that between your work, between Leah's work, between so many people's work, it's, uh, it's pretty much it's blown for good. Um, well, I'll tell you this one thing to wrap it up. Yeah. I did a show on an AM radio show in LA on a, a station there. It's called KFI AM 640. It's a big uh, station in Los Angeles, but it's AM. So, you know, I don't know how many listeners or whatever they got, but I did a show. And the reason I did that show is because that was one of the only radio stations that we could get at the international base. And you weren't really supposed to listen to the radio, but there were some people there that listened to the radio and they heard stuff. And I thought, there's a possibility that somebody there is going to hear this interview and it's going to put a crack in their, in their, in their mind. It's going to tell them to get the hell out of there. You know who was listening? Uh, Ron Miscavige Sr. Oh, I love it. I love it. He was listening and he was like, you know what? Mark is right. And he took him a little bit, but he got the fuck out of there. And when he told me that he listened to that interview that I did, I was like, I don't care if no one else heard. I think that show made a difference. So that's why that's kind of the the attitude I take with every single show. If I can stop one person from getting in or I can help one person get out, either one of those, it was worth it. And I'm pretty sure we're definitely going to stop some people from getting in. And uh, if we get if we help somebody get out as well, that's uh, even more. But, um, yeah, I encourage anybody who knows about it and, and even people who find out about it. I mean, if you if you read a book by Ron or myself or, you know, you listen to a podcast, 
if you're entertained by it and you got something out of it, spread the word, man. That you could save a life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, um, that's why I do it. You know, I know that uh, I am battling that, though. It's sort of like, is it already out there enough? It's like, am I adding anything to this pond? But then, of course, you know, you have to kind of just believe that you are. So um, that's why. Totally. That's I why. mean, there's a Terminator. There's a Terminator fan in here somewhere that's like, I don't know, man. My sister says it's amazing. <laughs> Very. Hold on. Did you make that reference because you knew about my... Yeah, absolutely, oh, dude. Okay, nice, nice. I went and saw the I went and saw the Terminator at the World Theater when it came out. I saw it for two bucks in Holly <laughs> on Hollywood Boulevard. It was the best movie ever. Anyway, uh. um, but uh, no, I'm serious. That you never know. Like, there's somebody who's a huge Terminator fanboy, and his sister works at the Scientology place, and she's trying to get him in all day and all night. Yeah. And he's gonna hear this, and he's gonna be like, you know what, sis? I can't do it, man. I heard uh, I heard Eddie talking about it with a bunch of different people, man. It's not it's not for me, man. <laughs> yeah. One thing I am working on is I'm trying to get um, and this is not me trying to like subtly say, hey, can I talk to your wife? But I'm seriously, all I've talked to is men from Scientology. I'm trying to like I've reached out to so many women that have, you know, been ex Scientologists. And, and for some reason, it seems like only the guys respond. I don't know why, but um, oh. I'm trying I'll to get. Her. I'll put in a good word for you. She's done a few different uh, radio shows and interviews and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I I wrote the book, so I'm kind of like the I'm the talking head of the of the headleys that have escaped. But uh, <laughs> you're the I mean, talking head. On, I like it. She was also on the show as well, and um, and her story is like is equally as horrible. I mean, all the stuff that she had to go through there. So. Um, yeah, I'll put in a good word. I'll tell her, uh, hey, give him a ring. See what you can do. You guys can do a show. But um, yeah, no, I I really appreciate uh, you talking to me and having me on. And um, yeah, if you if you if you thought any of what I had to say was interesting, go to Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it on uh, Audible, uh, iBooks, anywhere where you can get a digital book. I got it out there, unlike Scientology, who do not have digital versions of their books out there as much as I do. Um, and but, and uh, it's called Blown for Good Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. At the beginning, I said inside the curtain. Inside, behind, <laughs> on top of, well, it doesn't matter. There's an iron curtain, and it has to do with Scientology. And that's what the book's about. Yeah, but yeah, but you never know. People could do a Google search of "blown for good" inside the Iron Curtain of Scientology, and it could be a Scientology-created uh, kind oh, of. Oh no, Scientology <laughs> bought that domain like as soon as it came out of your mouth. They're like, "Oh, we got to, got to get that domain." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> David, David Miscavige, if you are listening, go to hell. Okay, go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> on a fast train. Yeah. Go to hell on a fast train. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, but, no, dude, I appreciate you having me. And then, uh, yeah, let me know, and I'll uh, I'll definitely uh, point Claire in your direction. I'd appreciate it, man. But that wasn't uh, that wasn't the point of that. It was just to be like, hey, for some reason, it's only been men that I've talked to, and I'm just trying to get uh, like a female perspective as well on this. But um, uh, for social media, what do you have that is uh, that's active that you're active on? I'm on Twitter. I I don't post a lot on Twitter, but uh, blown at blown for good. And then uh, blownforgood.com. And then also, 
if you're if you are a fan of uh, some of us who are speaking out, we have a foundation yes. as well that's called the Aftermath Foundation. And yeah. what it is is we found that from all the people that have escaped, the people that have been able to stay out of Scientology had in a lot of cases um, other people that could help them with a place to stay or a little bit of cash or a car or a job or some somebody hooked them up and that just got them enough to get them on their feet so they could start their life again and um, that's what the Aftermath Foundation does it's people that are trying to leave Scientology and when you leave Scientology um, in a lot of cases your entire world is involved with Scientology your parents or your family or your your work your job your friends and you'll lose your job you lose your connections with all those people when you become an outcast and say you no longer support it the aftermath aftermath foundation helps people who leave um, get back on their feet and uh, and start their lives again and um, so you can go to the aftermath foundation um, you can just go to that go to that site you can see how to help Another thing we have is we have a thing called the SP shop and the SP shop sells micrinder bobbleheads and SP bracelets and a portion of the funds from the sale of those goes to support the aftermath foundation. The SP shop is one of the biggest contributors to the aftermath foundation and we raise funds uh, to support the aftermath foundation. So you can go to the aftermath foundation or you can go to the SP shop dot com and i had no clue about that so i will definitely be doing that i will be buying a bobblehead and i will put in a good word because you need a bobblehead <laughs> you're right you no, i'm not uh, your last well, name is headley your last name is right? headley <laughs> no one ever made that connection the bobble headley <laughs> well you know the other thing is that scientology made a bobblehead of mike rinder and they used it in their hate videos. Oh my God. <laughs> because basically um, they just wanted to make fun of Mike. So they made a bobblehead of him. And when I saw the bobblehead, I was like, oh my God, I could do such a better job at making a bobblehead. Like it didn't even look like Mike. He was wearing a sweater. I've never ever seen Mike wear a sweater in the, the two decades that I've known him. Uh. Um, so I was like, I need to put this, I need to make the most awesome bobble render. And then uh, we'll sell them and we'll tell everybody it was Dave Miscavige's idea to buy them. <laughs> and we've sold a lot of bobble renders. That's what we call them. Affectionately, we call them bobble renders. Um, but yeah, and they're not even that expensive. Awesome. Um, but yeah, bobble renders and SP bracelets. You can be a proper SP. You can show your, uh, show your status. Uh, in Scientology, they have clear bracelets. So when someone gets to the state of clear, or becomes an OT, they have clear and OT bracelets. So we were like, well, we're SPs, so we got to have SP bracelets, suppressive people, or we like to consider ourselves special people. Fuck yeah, that's awesome. I'm so happy you told me about that. I hadn't, I did not know about that. So, Mark, this has been um, this has been one of the more fun ones, absolutely for sure. I can definitely say that, and I'm not uh, I'm not just trying to you know kiss your ass. I'm I'm being a hundred percent real with you. This is a lot of fun, and uh, I hope that this I, that, that that this changes somebody's life. And if it doesn't, I hope it's just at least entertaining and informative. So awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I hope I didn't swear too much for your 
your babe. No uh, such thing. In the woods, listeners. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, Blum for good. Aftermath Foundation. SP Shop. Peace out. There we go. I'll talk to you soon, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye.